And now it's time for Eastcast and reports from coastal stations. East Utsira, West Utsira, South West Utsira and North North East Utsira. Wind South West, rain at times, good. Forties, fifties, sixties, Tyne, Dogger, German Bite, French Kiss and Swiss Roll. Westerly becoming cyclonic, good. Right here in London's East End. Operating at any level, any time, anywhere, and with anybody. Who are they? One might be your secretary, your doctor's receptionist, or a dancer in a go-go club. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Now, now, now. Hello and welcome back to Eastcast here on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB. Eastcast is a monthly delve into the arts, the culture and the community bubbling away in East London, but always resonating way beyond. So wherever you're listening, good to have you with us. I'm Pearl Wise. Unfortunately, Jesse couldn't join us for the show, but I'm here in plenty of good company. So later we'll be meeting uh, Batimama founder Hakim Kasim, uh, Roland Fisher from a new art space in Dalston, and Artur Vidal and Hannah White will be taking us through some sonic meditations. But first, a warm welcome to Charles Garrod, ahead of his feature film debut, Waiting for You, to be premiered in the UK at the East End Film Festival, which actually does start today. But before we talk about the film, let's hear an excerpt. Those of you who knew my dad well, I expect sometimes you remember he'd speak about BJ and AJ. Before Janet and after Janet. Um, and BJ included his many years in the army, of course, but Dad never said much about that. And Janet's my mum, so that definitely makes me AJ. <laughs> and hardly anyone knows where Aiden is anymore, but I know that my dad went there. Something to do with oil, just the same old story. And then he. Served in Northern Ireland and in, in other places too. Dad did his duty, Sergeant Ashton. And uh, Dad once told me that all his dreams were about the army. But he never said what was in them. It's like... As though some part of him stayed back there in Aden. I think part of him died because my dad was not a whole person. And now he's all gone. So that was an excerpt from the beginning of the film um, where Paul, played by Colin Morgan, reveals um, at his father's funeral that his uh, military father has a hidden past. So, Charles, what was the inspiration for that story? Where did you find the, the story from? Well, it was a, an idea that um, the co-writer, Hugh Stoddart, and I 
dreamed up together. I gave actually gave Hugh a short list of things that I would really love to include in a film. Uh, it was a relationship in a, between an older person and a younger person, uh, and a house should be a, cent- a central figure, uh, an actual character in the story, and it sh- there should be a ghost. And Hugh found a, uh, uh, a story, a Henry James story, the, the Aspen Papers, set in Venice, where a young man worms his way into a house in order to get hold of some papers that he really wants to find. Um, and we developed a story together, um, which eventually became Waiting for You. So um, it's mostly set in France, in the yes. south of France. Do yes. you have... Because I just felt when I was watching the film that um, it could only have been made with someone who really knows, like has some sort of connection with France. Is that the case? or uh, Not really, actually. Okay. All of this sounds a little bit um, practical, but... We were looking for somewhere that he could go to, that he could reach under his own steam without going by plane or somewhere that was foreign but close enough to achieve in an old car um, because we wanted it to be a a personal journey. Yeah. Um, And, again, we we were looking for for an interesting house that had a a strong atmosphere and um, also a very mysterious woman to inhabit the house. Um, so, yeah, I actually, you said that the, the house is in itself is a kind of protagonist in the film. It's, it's a very important part of the film. I could almost smell that sort of old French musty uh, yeah. building. You, you really kind of get a feel for that. And then this relationship um, with this older woman um, is quite interesting. Like, you, she's, um, you know, it, it's quite a kind of... I guess it's that sort of typical older, sexy French woman who kind of knows how to handle herself, but you don't quite know what's going on throughout the film. There's a sort of tension there. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, the, his father gives him, on his deathbed, he gives him a, a, a clue that he's owed something by somebody from all that time ago. And... He, Paul actually needs an excuse to leave because he's dropped out of college, he doesn't have a job, he finds that his mother has no money left, the house has been mortgaged and gone, and he grips onto the clue that he's given and goes to explore, and he finds lots of things out about himself and also about his father. Hugh, the co-writer who initiated the, the kind of military end of the story, is very interested in that kind of trauma. Um... And so there's an underlying bit of military trauma, but it's also exploring the difference or the similarity between much more personal trauma and more military political trauma. And then there, I don't want to give too much away, but there's also this kind of... He also kind of finds himself and there's a love interest there yes, as there well. Yes, there is. And it's, it's, it's the, the premise of being about an old person doing something for a young person and a young person doing something for an old person is very well fulfilled in the, in the story. And um, the girl from the village, played by Audrey Bastien, um, provides a kind of youth that counterpoints to Fanny Ardant's um, 
uh, age and sophistication, which you've already alluded to. Yeah. So, but there's there's a lot about being old and being young, as you can see. That listeners can't, but I'm quite old. <laughs> so um, it's, it, it, it's sympathetic to to older people, I think, and gives give. There's a resolution for an older person, which is a, a nice thing to see. Yeah, and this is your first feature film. Why why did why did you wait so long? Um, I think it was the title of the film, Waiting for You. We've been trying to do it for um, ten or more years. Uh, but I, I have done a lot of production design for films and TV drama, and I work also as an artist. And I've wanted to do this for a very long time, but I slightly got typecast as a production designer. And uh, film business is very, very conservative, as you no doubt realise. And uh, and it's quite difficult to make that move, particularly if if you're older. I'd, I would have expected to have done it much sooner, but I'm glad to be an OAP first-time director. <laughs> it's never too late to start anything. Well, no, it isn't. It's a good message for the yeah. for the public at large. Um, so your film is actually going to be um, playing at the East London Film Festival. Um, and so I think it's on the 21st of April. Next Saturday, the 21st. Yeah. Half past eight at Rich Mix. At Rich Mix. Yeah. Um, but the reason why we were put in touch is, yes, there's the East End Film Festival connection, but also you're an East London resident for, and you have been for a while and you've got kind yes, of connections. What I've been here in the East End since 1980 uh, and I've worked worked from and in the East End and lived in the East End all of that time. So I, I am um, a local in a sense. I mean, I wasn't born here, but I've been here more than half my life. And would you say, I mean, maybe this is a silly question, but I think where we live does kind of influence our lives in some some way or other. Um, how do you think, what what has the this specific area of London kind of, inf- what kind of, how has it changed your life? Well, it's just incredibly vigorous and incredibly varied and vibrant. And as I say, I think I, I came back to London. I was a student here before then, but I came back in 1980. And, I, and I, it's changed every single day since then. Not all for the better, but quite a lot for the better. And it's just been an incredibly vigorous environment to, to live and work in. And I, I'm, I originally came to the East End because it was a cheap place to live and you could get studio space for artists and so on. I know it's much harder now for younger people and nobody would believe that it was ever a cheap place. But that, but it, it still retains um, a great deal of the, the character and the diversity um, from that, that one recognised in that period. Yeah. All right. So um, just to remind everyone, waiting for you, go and see it, 21st of April at Rich Mix. Um, if people miss it there, is there well, any other way of seeing the film? Well, we very much hope there will be soon. <laughs> yeah. We hope for a, a, a theatrical release and there will certainly be VOD and um, TV exposure. But the next thing will be a theatrical release, although it's not actually programmed yet, but it should be quite soon. So I would urge people to come and see it. And um, So we're going to play just... Um sort of play out of the interview um, a piece of music uh, which is uh, a track called Sitting in the Park by George Fame. Can you help listeners understand why this is so important? This yes, track? Well, th- those that are old enough to remember 1967, I think it was 1967, this was a very, very popular 
um, record and uh, it crops up as a major clue for Paul in his uh, um, search through his father's life and he plays the record at a, at a critical moment in the story and in fact the, the line is sitting in the park waiting for you so in the story just everybody is waiting for somebody and um, this is the two principal characters waiting for one another. Charles Garrett, thank you so much for having us. Thank you. As always with these cast now onto something completely different. Uh, joining me is Hakim Nassim from uh, a collective, an organisation called Batimama. 
uh, specialised in queer, black and brown performance arts and events. Welcome, Heike. Hello, hi, how are you? So, tell me more. What what what, what exactly is Batty Mama? Uh, so, I would define Batty Mama as a black, queer, uh, mixed, uh, mixed media uh, performance arts club night. Um, an aspiringly accessible, wheelchair accessible, deaf accessible um art space uh, that centers and celebrates black queer or black lgbtqia images uh, voices and stories so that's mostly it, yeah yeah so why why is there a need for something so specific um and um so on uh i don't know it, it, aren't these audiences uh catered for elsewhere why did you need to create like a specific event in this way uh, i think um the creation was just us, so me, me, Amlasana, and so me, um, Hakim Gazim, Lasana, Shabazz, and Amma Josephine Budge, um, are also artists and, and creatives. Uh, and then I just mostly, or we just kind of felt that we fun to do something together. So the actual night is like a collaboration of us uh, as people. Um, and so the need, I think, is kind of subjective. I think I know I really get. If, filled up or enriched by seeing sort of black queer art and black queer people um, and being, yeah, just being in a space where there is kind of black queer art and people. Um, so, yeah, um, go on to a space, go on to it. Yeah, so are, aren't there spaces, I mean, is there a, a lack of spaces for black queer art? Is it is it like, because it, that's what I'm asking, I guess, yeah. is, is there a need, so you've created, you've seen that there's, um, that this has there isn't a representation and there isn't a space where people feel comfortable so you're creating it or is it just part of a movement i think a little bit of of both i think when we started it was definitely a need to have a place that we felt comfortable that us three felt comfortable i think the last year or so there have been quite a few um events come up like coca buck club and um uh ducky family um uh yeah i think the representation is mostly it's nice to be seen so there's loads of art and people doing stuff but it does seem to be quite um disparate or in different places so i think what we do is kind of try and bring it all together into one space at the same time and then create like a like an immersive six hour night of just films poetry burlesque games yeah that centers black queerness so yeah you mentioned like that's a lot of stuff going on in one night can yeah. you d- just take us through like how what the experience might might be like so I think, uh, yeah, so if you walk into a space, there will be some visual art going on as you walk in. Um, then every half hour or so, there'll be a performance or some games, um, just or some competitions. So we have art, artists ranging from poets to um, dancers to blessed artists to we're going to have a play, the next one. Um, so it depends on who's around and who, yeah, what we can, can coordinate as far as creatives, yeah. So, and you, you're from a creative background as well. Tell, tell me a bit more about. Um, so, what you do. I'm mostly a film programmer. So, I program for Quit Fringe Queer Film Arts Festival and uh, the Benningwell Arts Centre. Uh, I'm also a filmmaker. Um, yeah, I make a couple of films. Like, I'm working on a project called Fierce Productions, which is basically just um, interviewing, yeah, black queer creatives and asking them about pleasure, joy, and uh, activism. And yeah, so it's mostly background in film and TV, but um, kind of veered into film more. So I don't know if it's just because I've become more aware of it, but there does seem to be 
a lot more, I don't know, presence of black queer activism and kind of representation? Is it, do you think, because people are just more comfortable or, or there's just there's just more space for people to um, communicate and to represent themselves and to kind of um, present what they're doing? Uh, yeah, I think um, I think activism has always been around, and black queer activism has always been around. Um, I just think uh, there's definitely media and sort of access in different ways. So we definitely have social media, which has definitely made it more um, known to other people. Um, I think like the events, I think regarding events, I think people have seen the gap, but because it all happened roughly at the same time, and people have been encouraged by other people doing stuff, it does feel like there's more. But I think there's more. Yeah, more social media and more uh, uh, like, a, like a bit of a groundswell, I think, in the last couple of years. Yeah, I guess it's that thing with social media where if you are in kind of disparate groups and, and scattered around the world, if you're, you've got like this commonality, there's, mm. a, there's a way to kind of find each other. And then now you're kind of producing that in a physical space where people can actually meet and yeah. um, feel comfortable in an, in an environment of similar people. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you when when's your next event what what's happening what are you doing uh, so our next event is uh, uh at hacking showroom at eight, on april 27th in a couple of weeks um 9 p.m till 3 a.m uh it's called spring and sprung it's going to be uh like a pretty and pink alternative black queer prom and you can just come in sort of fancy dress regalia um floral prints pastels primary colors just nice and gay um and then yeah it's just gonna be like a prom so we're gonna have to some games like a like a drag king slash drag queen prom drag king queen thing um and just have yeah try and have like a play on like american tv shows and sort of i think the idea for me so i'm uh coordinating this one and the idea for me was just to uh create images that we didn't really get to see growing up so we got a lot of american tv and films aka proms but none of them were sort of black or queer so it's just about sort of reclaiming that and sort of saying, oh, okay, if there were black and queer proms, what would they look like and just come in and have fun. So you're kind of twisting that very kind of 50s white American Yeah, 50s, 90s, imagery. 80s, Carrie meets um, Pretty in Pink meets, I don't know, uh, in, uh, American Pie, depending on what your references are. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah um, I'm looking forward to seeing photos. It sounds yeah. quite yeah. incredible. Um, and music-wise, what what kind of music do you play at your events? What can people expect? I mean, it's very uh, R&B, Bashman, um, uh, yeah, grime. Um, so we have a couple DJs that we use, and each DJ has their own styles, but it's mostly R&B, hip-hop music. So we have um, one of our resident DJs is Crystal Lake, She's quite eclectic and does a lot of um, techno and dub as well and Vogue. But there's definitely a lot of R&B and sort of new R&B and old R&B sort of mixes. She does her own mixes, just her own mixes as well, which is quite interesting for us. It's fun. Yeah, and I I guess, you know, a lot of um, sort of gay events are very house Mm. music orientated. So Mm. it's it's quite refreshing to have some different kinds of music to be able to to listen to. well, is there anything else that you need to add to tell the world about? Now's your chance. Uh, I've put you on the spot, but I mean, so this this um, April twenty seventh, it's going to be our first um, proper film program. So we have a short film program in collaboration with 
uh, new queer visions, um, and then we're going to do like a two hours slot of sort of just short films that centre love and passion and sex, um, but black queer sort of love, passion and sex. Um, that's going to be quite fun, I think, exciting. We're going to have a silent disco, which is going to, we did had last time. We're going to have again, which is quite fun. We're just confirming a couple of DJs and see what having see what happens that way. A nice fun soul train, um, and then. We're planning a couple of things in, in the next in the upcoming year, so we're maybe like a betting brunch, which is just like a daytime event that people can come to. They don't necessarily night owls or people who go out at night. They can just come to the day. Mm. Maybe I'm not sure if it'd be dry or not, but it could just be a fun daytime thing. Yeah, great. Well, thank you, Hakeem, for joining us. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm going to play something that's kind of in the theme now. Um, so I had the honour of working on an uh, an audio project with um, uh, a project called Rainbow Pilgrims, which is a collection of oral histories from LGBTQI migrants in London. And this is one of the pieces uh, from that collection called Finding the Words. It's like this elephant in the room because my parents know about it, but the rest of the family may never know. And that's partially because I want it to be like that. My parents found out while I was here that I'm gay and they just start giving me threats and all all the phone. My family and my cousins and my relatives, they called me, they threatened me and they said if I'm gonna come back, they're gonna do this because I disrespect them in front of their family and family relatives. Before I come to UK I was beaten by the five people because my partner father catch me with having sex with his son so he want to try to kill me so I tried to to run away and then the next day morning five people come to my place and they told me they know you have sex with a with a guy Korean Americans most of them are, are uh, in contrast to actual like native Koreans it's it, most Korean Americans are Christian and, but there's also this, it's, it's, a, it's a gross generalization, kind of like idea of, of what being Asian is in America. There's this pressure to conform to this idea of the model minority. And being gay is, is not quite part of that. And they used to make fun of me because I didn't have a boyfriend, you know, when you're at school. They expect you to have a boyfriend. So they used to make fun of me. Oh, is she a lesbian? Is she a lesbian? Why doesn't she have a boy? Uh, I'm a gay and it's hard for my family to see me like this because they don't know yet. I didn't never mention anything yet and I'm never going to tell them. I won't be able to. And even I got married here in this country and I had I tried to change myself, do it as much as I can, but still it doesn't work. They say that I'm bringing shame to the family. It's, it's very painful even up to now to talk about it because it's like you are a black sheep even though I was the only child. Nothing I did was right. 
So it was a hard time when they knew my sexuality. The most extreme thing that people go through with is that you are Zulu and there are certain principles and regulations that if you are a Zulu person, you will be behaving this certain way and you live your life this certain way, obviously, which you are made for a man and you can't wear trousers and um, you can't talk in a certain way, you can't sit in a certain way. This culture of ancestries that people believe in, every single family or every single individual would know about it and it will be your rulership in your life. I've never heard of a form of way where they speak good about LGBT people. I guess that's why I never bumped into any LGBT person even to confirm. Even myself, I knew I was LGBT, but I couldn't even share it with my own sister until later on coming to England. So those kind of form of words that they use for LGBT or describe an LGBT person is derogatory, pure derogatory. It's a terrible, terrible word. I don't even know where to start, basically, to say it in English. I grew up very, like, strongly in the Jewish organization, and uh, I never knew about LGBT. It was something that it wasn't spoken about. I never really got to meet an LGBT person in person in South Africa who would confirm to me personally that, oh, you know what, I'm gay. Despite of the fact that I left at the age of 16, and let alone then to transition, it would be even another case that is highly dangerous, even more. Because um, having to wait for the hormones and having to confirm that I'm trans, while I still have all the facilities of a female. Already that people are confused about lesbians, and then how then do I even start explaining myself being transgender? So they would want to be insecure even more. They would want to know what genitals do I even have there. They're all oh, you trans men. What's that? I can't even really explain in Zulu what is a trans man. There's no word for it. They will just particularly assume that I'm a lesbian. I feel as if um, it's only until when I, I was here and then I started dating my first girlfriend at college, I started learning, not even learning, started being comfortable to speak the word called lesbian without having to have that whole thing that I can't say it. If I say it, what's this other person going to think, you know? So that's the only time where I felt like, okay, I can say this word. And I could say, oh, you're my girlfriend. I started, the, the tongue started being at ease. 2012, I'm still a lesbian. Until up to 2014, I'm questioning my, uh, myself because I'm not like um, a feminine lesbian. Even I was still dressing like feminine clothes, but not strictly hard feminine clothes. So... Then I met some of my friends from Africa, from Zimbabwe, you know, that came a long time here. So when I saw him, he's now transgender as well. He was dressing more like a strong butch um, stud 
lesbian so i was like oh i like the way you dress and then we, I, I began dressing like that i had long hair i cut my hair every day it became more deeper and deeper and deeper confirming as a, a masculine lesbian and in 2014 he began his transition as a trans man first i only began mine after questioning myself which was uh, i started seeing doctors late 2015 so the change period obviously from being a masculine lesbian uh, to a trans man there's not much time you know it's just a couple of years apart i've been living as a man for almost two years or three years like now um pre-testosterone changing my name everything i'm safe here in the uk well it's normal here and it's more realistic it's more comfortable and obviously if you don't respect the person you will be in trouble with the law despite that south africa has a supporting law but the community you can have a good law but if you have a, a bad community then there's a problem there was a time that i actually performed in front of the entire school and i was ridiculed for the rest of my scholastic year <laughs> which is something i i remember vividly it was one of my earlier memories from primary school i came out at university and i came out in a big way i came out in a way where i met lots of friends and we became the freaks of we called ourselves the freaks because we dressed it was the 80s yeah you know. <laughs> So we dressed really differently from a small town in New Zealand and it was a university town but it was quite conservative at still. It's been almost 20 years since I came out so like it's hard to understand because it's just so different the context now in uh, in good ways and and bad ways uh how people uh kind of form their sexuality or come into the idea of thinking that they're gay. If I knew the stuff I knew now back then I would have done it much differently. It was just hard to get information because I didn't know that many gay people. Eventually I found the the strength to come out to more and more of my friends and that led to coming out to everyone publicly which means to everyone I knew and everyone that heard of me but not my parents that had to to wait for a while so that was finding the words um and you can hear more sounds from the collection of uh, from rainbow pilgrims um of lgbtqi plus migrant stories um and you can find those on rainbow pilgrim rainbowpilgrims.com you're listening to east car show on resonance 104.4 fm and dmb don't forget you can get in touch with us on twitter and facebook at east car show and you can listen again to our podcast on itunes or spotify just search east car show london and everything uh, from the show is also on eastcarshow.com so now i'm joined by roland fisher and ollie tobin from set which is an organization that turns disused buildings into affordable artist studios welcome 
both. Hi, thanks for having us. Thank you. Um, So tell us a little bit about uh, SET as an an entity. What what, what is it? So we're an arts and educational organisation. It's a charity. Um, We're basically a charity for the promotion of the arts as a public benefit, I suppose. But we also do affordable artist workspace. The system is basically that those who take on artist workspace become members of the charity and co-curate our programme. Um, and then we usually have project spaces in, in if we take over a building. It's often in disused and temporarily vacant buildings, but um, we are actually looking for somewhere permanent. Um, yeah, uh, so that's basically the, the way it works. So you've got several spaces at the moment? We have two. So one in Dalston and then the first one we ever got, which is just down the road from here in um, in Bermondsey. And so the one that we're interested in now is obviously um, set space in Dalston. Um, that's quite a new venture for you. When, when did you open that? Um, it was in, when was it, about February the 18th? 17th. Right, 17th. February the 17th. Very precise, okay. Yeah, get it right. <laughs> yeah. um, and there are about 20 studios upstairs, would you say? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's about 25 artists and, yeah, 20 studios, something like that. Cool, yeah. and then what, uh, downstairs we also have a bar and a venue. Uh, yes, yeah, so the bar and venue sort of acts as the trading arm, so the proceeds and profits from that, if there are any, um, kind of go back into the charity is the idea. Um and that, yeah, functions as a bar during the week. And then we've got a venue space as well for um, uh, various different nights which we're putting on. Um, it's quite eclectic at the moment, which is how we want to keep it. Uh, yeah. So are the artists upstairs, are they kind of programming what's happening downstairs, involved in what's yeah, happening downstairs? Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the, uh, two of the artists upstairs run the, um, the film night, which is every Monday, and that's... Um, yeah, experimental films, but it also kind of access- accessible. It's kind of they, they strike quite a nice balance, um, and yeah, lots of them. Lots of them are put on various nights. Um, uh, we've got two people who run who run a um, experimental electronic music night, which is monthly, and that's kind of female, uh, mostly female artists. Um, yeah, yeah. So the, yeah, the, it's kind of interlinked. And so the kind of business model. Um Artists are obviously renting the studios. Um, what kind of prices are we talking? Are we allowed to talk about that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So um, we it ranges. It depends on how much we have to pay in rent to the landowner. So we basically do it. The studios just cover our rent um, plus any business rates that we have to pay um, and utilities. And that's all inclusive in the price. The... So when we've had free buildings in the past, it's been as low as 55p per square foot per calendar month, which is about half the price of the lowest, um, Acme being like the lowest provider. Um, then it's the highest we've hit is like 1.3 for some studios, which is still just below the average, but um, but that's like, then it's just below the average, but it's not like massively below but we try and be really open with the fact that yeah. like we're trying to do it as cheaply as we can and every and we're we're really honest about prices there's no like nothing hidden 
So I can't work this out in my head right now. Um, so average price. First, you're an artist, you want a studio. How much are you going to be paying a month? Somewhere between like 100 and 200 quid a month. Right. Um, some of them, if you want masses of space, would be more. But like, yeah. Okay. Um, so how you're, you obviously, um, this, is, this has become your job. Yeah. You're running the space. I imagine it takes up a lot of time. So are you able to kind of, pay yourselves to do that it's meant to come (laughs) it's meant to come from the bar basically um so any all of the trading stuff is is meant to cover our um wages but then that obviously depends on us running a bar that works yeah sure sure so so how are you how are you kind of getting getting the punters in how are you well we've we've had um we've had various licensing issues which is incredibly tedious and i don't think anyone wants to um (laughs) hear about well maybe they do actually but um but we um yeah the whole point is it's it's kind of open to open to everyone and um you know public facing and 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 um is as affordable as possible for people coming in and as i say so we've had we've had um you know cinema nights and things like that but we've uh, had life drawing classes on a sunday or um or pub quizzes that that kind of thing um but also um um yeah, yeah. As I, as I say, it's, it's affordable as, as possible. There's a range of different things on, loads of different kinds of music, and um, yeah, uh, we 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 um, uh, we only charge at weekends three pounds on the door, and that's just to kind of cover our costs and pay. Yeah, and I have to say, you are in a kind of super prime location. You're on Dalston Lane, yeah. um, amongst the whole kind of Dalston. Um, you know, nightlife. You're right in it. So uh, a, a night where you can go and listen to music and dance or just have a drink for three quid is pretty decent. Until I half think. two in the morning. So. Yeah. 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 so, I mean, there aren't that many venues in Dalston where you can do that anymore. So um, it does it does kind of have that old, like, squat feel. I know you probably don't want it to be like that. That's because we did it up ourselves, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but that's a charm. I think you know. I think people miss that a bit. There aren't that many, but you know, a lot of the venues in Dalston are quite shiny and bit, a bit over decorated and themed. So it, it's kind of nice to have somewhere that's a, a little bit more relaxed. Well, I think part of that as well is um, just uh, we're, we're aware of the fact that we may not have it for too long. So everything we can kind of transfer to somewhere else, and lots of the stuff has come from buildings that we've had in the past. So we can kind of move on um, and kind of up and leave, and then reset. Yeah. If you pardon that pun. Yeah, no. <laughs> Very good. Unintentional. <laughs> but but perfectly um perfectly said. Um so what what can we expect kind of in the coming weeks, months? What what have you got any kind of interesting events that people should know about or if artists wanna have you got any studio spaces available? At the moment all of the studios are taken up. Um but over the next we always actually post online if something comes available and we'll put it on our website and, and stuff like that. Um, over the next coming weeks, we've got... We have set various monthly nights. So one of them is an Atata Records night, which one of the trustees runs. Um, it's kind of her record label with two other people who we used to work with. It's a techno um, and experimental electronic music label and they, they do that once a month. 
Um, I think Open Windows has been cancelled for this month. But that will be monthly. That is that. usually monthly, yeah. And they're, they're two people who used to have studios with us in, in Tower Hamlets, um, and they, they run like a kind of quite ambient, um, again, experimental electronic music. Um, We've got um, a couple of fundraisers as well. We've done done a few... Um, as, you, as you say, a lot of people kind of contact us and, and want yeah. to put things on, and they tend to be things like fundraisers or... Um, yeah, single launches, but but the proceeds go to whatever uh, charity they they decide on. Yeah, there's actually one called Reef where the money goes to um, it's run by someone from Antigua, and the money goes to Climate Action in Antigua, and that's a kind of monthly um, night that that this guy puts on called Bew. And we're doing something. Yes, um, so <laughs> <laughs> we are doing our second East Cast Away uh, event, which is like a listening lounge event where we um, showcase uh, radio, audio works, um, um, clips from podcasts or complete podcasts of um, all the kind of interesting audio that's and mainly spoken word, but there's some kind of more experimental stuff as well that people are making in the UK at the moment because there's a real kind of thriving scene but um, there aren't that many opportunities for people to hear everything in one space and in a public space so we've decided to kind of launch this event we did it uh, the first one for the resonance fundraiser and it was a real success so we decided to do it again so we're we, very happy you're doing yeah it. no we're also... delighted to do it at set space because it is it is the perfect venue for us so that will be on the 20th of june it's quite a way away still but um no it's great that that we're going to be there and we're we're kind of looking forward to that no no we're really and also like um having spoken word stuff because that's um kind of right up our street and we haven't had enough of that so far so Fantastic. All right. Well, Roland, Ollie, thank you so much, thank you very much. for um, you. coming on the show. And if anyone wants to find out more and look at your program, um, www.setspace.uk, not co. Dot UK. <laughs> very good. All right. Thank you. So um, I, um, for our next guest, I first met. Arthur Vital and um, uh, Vidal and uh, Hannah White a few years ago cycling around on Kath Matthews Sonic Bikes in London Fields. And Arthur introduced me to something called Sonic Meditations, which is one of those things that I've been meaning to try but just never have quite managed it. Um, but before we find out more, let's, let's just hear something. Ha 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 
Okay, so welcome, Victor and Hannah. Can you explain what we just heard? Sure. Uh, uh, what you just heard is um, a recording of um, one of Pauline Oliveris' sonic meditations uh, called Zena's Circle. <clears throat> and we recorded that at Supernormal Festival last um, last summer, where we facilitated a workshop um, exploring some of the sonic meditations. So, yeah, which and we're going to tell you more yes. about. Yes, so a sonic sonic meditation. What 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 is that? Well, uh, yes, well, sonic meditations are. Um, <clears throat> Around 25 pieces that were created by um, Paulino Oliveros, the composer Paulino Oliveros, at the beginning of the 70s. And um, uh, it's kind of like um, a set of text course, instructions, or recipes uh, that make possible uh, sonic experiences. So um, it's often like a few lines of text that um, um, put you in a situation of listening or uh, sometimes also making sounds. And uh, these situations create uh, awareness in such a way that you might uh, pay attention to uh, the sounds from the environment, to yourself, and to the, dynami- to, to the dynamics of the group in a way that you might not be familiar with. Mm. So that's one of the aspects of the sonic meditations that we are uh, practicing. Mm-hmm. And what, how do you practice? What, how does it work? Is it like a fixed group? What... Yeah, so we meet every two weeks on a Thursday um, at the moment. I mean, it it does change sometimes. And, yeah, I mean, Artu and I have been doing it since May 2015, so nearly three years now. Uh, And there are others who've been um, coming that long as well, like Stephen Scheel and Lou Barnell. and, And then there's a sort of wider network of people who, as you were describing earlier, Artu, there's sort of those people that, that we know will always come back but don't come regularly. And then there's uh, more people, m- maybe from the last five, six months, who come on a more regular basis. Um, but, yeah, it's it's a completely open-door policy group. Anyone can come along. Um, you can try it once and never come back, or you can come every single week, and it's free. Um, and, yeah, so at the moment we're meeting at the Yurt Cafe, which is part of St. Catherine's Precinct in Limehouse, which is a community space, Um so yeah, Thursday evenings, seven till nine. Great. Um, so what? What? Do, I mean, it's a wonderful invitation for people to come. But what? What? What do people get out of it? Is it like a meditation? Do you kind of open different areas of your brain? Are you kind of? Is there? Are there kind of physiological um, results mm. or, or d- d- changes or what? What happens when you're kind of doing these vocal? exercises i guess Mm. they are okay um well lots of things happen um person i mean yeah i can speak from my personal experience um i came to this through practicing being a musician um and improvising and artur introduced us to this work originally and um we were practicing another uh, another composer's work john stevens search and reflect and then artur came along to that group and then we started to do the sonic meditation group and yeah for me really it's it's um given me a place to expand my awareness that isn't yoga or isn't connected to any religion it's given me a space to connect with a group of people to have a sense of community 
um, to explore making sound in the myriad of ways that there are. And, and, you know, there's an infinite number of ways you can use your voice. We often just use voice, but you can use instruments as well. Um, and, yeah, I mean, she talks in the introduction to the Sonic Meditations about that really there's, there is a sense of healing that comes through this work, mainly because you're being listened to and listening in a group. Um, you're being given ways of of conveying your memories and emotions and feelings within these scores and having those listened to and heard, which is very therapeutic, obviously. And also this idea of expanding your awareness through listening and attention to sound, which gives you a greater sense of, of expansion um, as you may get through other forms of meditation. So, yeah, I would say it is a, definitely a form of meditation. Um, I totally agree. I mean, it's perfectly well described. I uh, when 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 I discovered this material, I was curious about um, about. Uh, I have heard her name before, the name of uh, composer Perrin Riveros, but was not so familiar with her work. And I was looking for some someone who will uh, bring um, interesting practice about um, music improvisation because that's originally my background. I was also curious about um, environment, environmental sound that's, because that's also an important aspect of, mm. of her work. And I also was curious about the practice um, involving text scores. So, um, yeah, I was looking to these uh, sonic meditations, these texts, these instructions, these recipes for sonic experiences. On, on, on reading, reading these texts, I had an idea of how this could sound. But um, immediately when I started practicing these pieces, I, I could experience that, that uh, the performance mm. of these pieces was bringing something very unique and, and very uh, far from the idea I could have when, when reading the, the text. So ju I just asked people uh, who might be interested to join to do it because I was not going to do this to get, uh, alone. Mm. And, uh, yeah, and I thought I'm going to... I started, uh, like people like Hannah, Stephen, uh, and many other people, Lou, came uh, joined the, the group. And I really enjoyed practicing this, uh, these pieces. And I thought we are going to continue until there are people coming to the, to the meetings. And actually, we started three years ago, so... It's still mm -hmm. going on. Yeah. So we're going to play um, a piece called Welcoming the Light, just sort of in the background. And Hannah, you're going to guide us through a little radio meditation. Um, yeah. So let's try. It's a, a radio Sh first, I think. Shall I just say something about Welcoming the Light? Uh, yes. So this piece um, we performed actually on the Long Player Day, um, which was organised... Um, remember the name anyway it was organized as a celebration of um gem finds long player being the, the 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 guardianship of that being taken over um by the goldsmiths um yeah so it was on summer solstice last summer and w it, there was a long walk it was a beautiful day long walk with lots of different artists along the way and one of them was us as a group and we led all the audience members in this piece, which is called Welcoming the Light. So, so, so before you start, <coughs> I'm just going to kind of say my goodbye so that we can just oh, okay. go nicely yeah, sure. out. Um, so uh, we'll be back on Resonance 104.4 FM with more sounds and stories from East London and beyond. In the meantime, you can find everything on eastcarshow.com. So, Hannah, do you want to just... Yeah. 
calm us down a little bit? I'd love to. Um, so I'm going to read you uh, a piece by Pauline Oliveros called Earth Sensing, Listening, Sounding. And essentially, yeah, find a comfortable place to sit or you can even lie down if you like and just have a listen. Can you imagine letting go of anything that you don't need? As you feel the support of the ground or the floor underneath, can you imagine sensing the weight of your body as it subtly shifts in response to the pull of gravity? Can you imagine sensing the subtlest vibrations of the ground or the floor that is supporting you? Can you imagine your body merging with the ground or the floor? Can you imagining listening to all that is sounding as if your body were the whole earth. You might hear the sounds of your own thoughts or of your body or natural sounds of birds or animals, voices, sounds of electrical appliances and machines. Some sounds might be very faint, some very intense, some continuous and some intermittent. As you are listening globally, can you imagine that you can use any sound you hear as a cue either to relax your body more deeply or to energize it? As you sense the feelings this listening brings, can you imagine including more and more of the whole field of sound in your listening? Near sounds, far sounds, internal sounds, remembered sounds, imagined sounds. As you become more and more able to use any sound, whether faint, ordinary or intense, to relax or to energize your body, can you imagine becoming increasingly aware of all the sounds possible to hear in any moment? Can you imagine allowing yourself to express the sound of your breath as you continue your global listening and deeper breathing? Can you imagine expressing any sound that comes naturally with your voice? Can you imagine continuing this sonic meditation by sensing, listening, breathing and sounding? Can you imagine that you are sound? <laughs> 